Welcome in the Great Khan's Tent. History, Literature and Storytelling Are you interested in getting the book you just published reviewed? Writing some piece of literature and need help getting it out there and promoted? Interested in sharing what piece of literature we should cover next? Well, fret not. In the Great Khan's Tent is now available on Patreon, where your contribution can help in growing this podcast. For as low as $3 a month, a price less than a good, and I mean good, cup of coffee, you can help contribute to the growth of this podcast. Every bit helps. But as always, it is not necessary to do so, but will be appreciated. Find the Patreon link on our website, on our social media accounts, or email us and we can send it to you. Thank you. If you have any suggestions, comments, or complaints, please be sure to email us at all lowercase in the great Hans tent at gmail.com. That is in the great Hans tent at gmail.com. We would love to hear from our listeners. Thank you for listening, and now, on with the show. In this series, you may hear a sound in the middle of the narration, like this. This is just a little informative sound to let you, the listener, know that an important footnote will be provided to help in the understanding of a certain concept or expand on what was discussed. In the Great Khan's Tent is now a year old. We would like to firstly thank all of our listeners for helping us with our journey so far and hope you are pleased by our offerings and plan to stick around as we reach new and better heights while bringing you the same quality of educational, informative, and entertaining content that we are known for. I would also like to thank all those supporters and well-wishers who have led us this far in the journey of this podcast. Without you, this would not be possible. Thank you. In the first of our one-year specials, we examined the question of obscenity and censorship in the 1001 Nights. This was a part of a question that a listener had asked of us concerning the translators and why we use the translations that we do for this podcast. In this talk, I discuss how the question of obscenity, censorship, and the translator themselves transformed the corpus of literature that we know today as the 1001 Nights. The history of the translators themselves, their translations, and their publication history will be examined in detail at a later time. If you'd like to know more, there is a reading list provided on our website, and I would recommend reading Edward Said's book on Orientalism to get a better grip of the environment and ideologies that these translators use to produce their works. We hope that you have found the offerings of In the Great Khan's Tent to be to your liking, and hope you continue to listen to us. Thank you. Greetings, listeners, and thank you for joining us today to celebrate the one-year anniversary of In the Great Khan's Tent, as well as the release of our 20th episode of In the Great Khan's Tent's comprehensive narrative reading of the 1001 Nights 
also commonly referred to as the Arabian Nights. And what a great year and 20 episodes it has been. We began this podcast as a means to bring to light the oft-ignored, overlooked, and forgotten pieces of literature, folk literature, and history from the regions of the Middle East, Central Asia, South Asia, North Africa, Mongolia, and the colonized Russian Far East. The fact that we have reached both 20 episodes and are a year old highlights the welcoming attitude our listeners and fans have to our mission, and we look forward to serving you with the same quality of educational and entertaining product that we have put out since the start of our journey. In the 20 episodes so far, we have encountered a variety of people from all spectrums of life, from the poor but wise fisherman who fooled a jinn, to a rich but foolish prince who gave everything up due to his curiosity, to brave sultans outsmarting and defeating their foes, to merchants traveling the Near East to ply their wares and encountering love and loss. We have also met with women who are the center and the cause of some of the stories, such as magicians weaving their spells, which entrap their helpless victims, to cunning and courageous princesses versed in magic fighting for what is right in the world. We have met historical characters as well who have populated the time period some of these tales were written in, such as Jafar al-Barmaki, the helpless vizier, always trying to get out of difficult spots his patron puts him in, and Harun al-Rashid, the quintessential caliph who is as wise as he is vicious. Above all, we have encountered the brave Shehrazad, the daughter of the vizier, who put her own life on the line to stop the rampage by the Shehen Shah and to bring peace into the realm. We thank you for continuing to listen to us for the whole year and helping us continue our journey. And I hope that you will continue to join us in our adventure through many forms of literature and history that we will encounter. The Hunchback and the Barber Translation, Obscenity and Censorship in The 1001 Nights The Arabian Nights, The 1001 Nights, referred to simply as The Arabian Nights, is one of the most translated works within English literature. Beginning in the early 18th century, it has continually established an audience with its mystical, boisterous, and adventurous tales that astound both the reader and the listener. The popularity of these translations can be seen in the large corpus of extant children's literature which has seen continual publication since the 18th century, while also publishing other translations which are suited more for the mature reader. However, the production of such a translation into a European language is fraught with censorship, boulderization, and hidden agendas which mar any attempts to understand the true nature of the work and as such raises questions about the intent of the translation, which may be a work that is wholly separate from the literary world. The purpose of this talk is to provide a preliminary survey examining certain aspects of censorship and presence of obscenity within the more popular adult translations of the 1001 Nights. Due to the wide depth 
of children's literature, this aspect will be undertaken in a future talk. The first aspect that will be examined will be the aspect of censorship, especially in the form of boulderization, with a focus on the translation of Edward William Lane. The second aspect that this talk will focus on will be on the reintegration of the obscene narrative structures back into the 1001 Nights, focusing on the translations of Richard Burton and the reasons behind this inclusion. Translations of the 1001 Nights Translations of the 1001 Nights have been in existence since the early 18th century with Antoine Gallard's Les Mills et une Nuits, Contes Arabias, first appearing in French in the European marketplace. This was then followed by the first English translation appearing in a Grub Street format from 1706 CE onwards. These translations were popular, considering that by 1736 CE, the complete 12-volume set had been published in eight editions. It was not until sometime during the middle of the 18th century and into the 19th century that other translators, who were unsatisfied with Galan's translations, took on the mantle to produce an authentic version of the 1001 Nights. Their achievements in publishing these authentic versions can be seen in the number of surviving monographs that are still, at least in some form or another, being published to this day. Interestingly, Jennifer Shacker Mill, within her article, The Otherness and Otherworldliness, Edward W. Lane's Ethnographic Treatment of the Arabian Nights, in the Journal of American Folklore, Volume 113, Number 448, published in spring 2000, identifies the role of the publisher and their hand in subsequent translation efforts. Although Galan's translations did originate from a manuscript which is currently housed in Paris's Bibliothèque Nationale, as identified by Ross Ballister in his article the Seaborne Tale, 18th Century English Translations of the Thousand and One Nights and the Lore of Elemental Differences, found in Shehrazad's Children, Encounters with the Arabian Nights, edited by Philip F. Kennedy and Marina Warner. There was a clear editorial presence within his translation. Once Galand had completed the translation from his manuscript, there was nothing left to publish. However, this had not ended the interest that was piqued within the reader. As a result, the publisher acquired several tales from a Marianite scholar named Johanna Dab, who had earlier met Galand in 1709 CE in or around Paris. It was a publisher who, in response to the readership, had Dab contribute a few tales into Galand's translation that were not originally from the corpus of the 1001 Nights. These were, of course, the story of Aladdin, Ali Baba and the Forty Thieves, and others which have subsequently become more popular than the actual narrative of the 1001 Nights themselves. This question of being authentic in translations 
had begun in England by at least 1794 CE. This can be seen through letters sent by the readers, such as a reader from the Gentleman's Magazine, who had complained of the incompleteness of the translations, and that in the Bodleian Library, there are many more of these fables in the original Arabic, which have not yet been introduced to the English reader, and which would probably form a valuable acquisition to a stock of innocent amusement in our language. This demand for a new translation, wholly separate from Galland's French translation, was also formulated with an apparent disdain for the French language. The British reading public, another reader noted, were tired of the defective translation and that a new translation, done through British translators, would recreate the fine poetical passages and moral reflections within which, we are told, the original abounds and are completely absent in Galland's translations. In response for an authentic translation, the first English translation was produced by Jonathan Scott. He was an employee of the British East India Company and had served in India during 1766 to 1785 CE, where he had studied Arabic and Persian. His six-volume translation was subsequently published in 1811 using the Bodleian Manuscript. With the publication of the English translations of the 1001 Nights, new problems had begun to emerge. One of these issues that was raised specifically targeted Scott's translation. Fatma Musa Mahmud, a scholar of the 1001 Nights, has argued that Scott's translation is poor due to his unimpressive command of both the Arabic language and its written script. This unfamiliarity with the Arabic script and the language would continually impede efforts of translations. A larger issue within the translations was its usage as an ethnographic study of Arabian culture. These ethnographic studies, then, focused on the Egyptian or Syrian Islamic cultures. This was mainly due to most translators acquiring their manuscript from these geographic locations. These ethnographic entries often took the form of a large corpus of footnotes and essays that were found both in the beginning and the ending of the monograph. These essays, therefore, were undertaken as a means of studying the ethnographic concerns that were brought by the 1001 Knights. These studies, however, were not done in a purely scholarly interest. Often shaped by forces of colonialism and orientalism, these translations attempted to make sense of the other. There is a clear interest, at least among the British reader, for a need to understand the outsider, and as the British colonial reach extended, the British reader was supposed to be informed about their colonial subjects. The most common ethnographic depictions were often found in the early published editions of the most prominent translators, such as Edward William Lane, John Payne, and Richard Burton. Edward William Lane's translations were shaped by attempts at understanding Arabic culture, both while he was visiting Egypt and during his translation process. His early work, Manners and Customs of the Modern Egyptians, published in 1836 CE, was a monograph which attempted 
to describe. The Muslim Egyptian festivals, funerary customs, and physical characteristics, to name a few subject areas that he covers in an attempt to build an ethnographic work. Lane's purpose in writing these ethnographies was so that they could be of general interest to the English reading public and contribute in literary studies. This was then followed up by subsequent publications on the Islamic religion, Selections from the Quran, first published in 1834 CE and then by Anne, Arabic-English Lexicon, published in 1836 CE. It should be noted, however, that subsequent editions of all translations were later published without their ethnographic footnotes and essays, which were more often removed due to publishers declaring them superfluous to the main text. Translations and Censorship Dina Heath, in her chapter, Obscenity, Censorship and Modernity, in a companion to the history of the book edited by Sam Elliott and Jonathan Rose, argues that censorship prior to the Obscene Publication Act 1857 CE. The Obscene Publications Act of 1857 CE, known also as Lord Campbell's Act or Campbell's Act, was a piece of legislation in the United Kingdom that dealt with obscenity, in particular with the sale of obscene material, and gave the courts power to seize and destroy the offending material. Prior to this act, the publication of obscene material was only a common law misdemeanor. At the time, the bill was controversial and received strong opposition from both Houses of Parliament, and only passed with the assurance that it intended to apply exclusively to works written for the single purpose of corrupting the morals of youth and of a nature calculated to shock the common feelings of decency in any well-regulated mind. The Obscene Publication Act of 1857 was repealed in 1959, replaced by the Obscene Publications Act of 1959 and later reformed in 1964 and currently is still active amended, however, by more recent legislation. Had been relatively liberal until the passage of such an act at which time most of the material that was then considered obscene had to be pushed into the underground publication market. However, Heath, within her article, did not undertake an examination of translations, especially of the 1001 Nights that were published prior to the passage of this act. Instead, her article had relied on literary works that were created and published within the United Kingdom. If she had done so, she would have noticed that the censorship was certainly not liberal, and that the translators themselves were a huge proponent in deeming what was suitable for society. Boulderization is described as a removal of material that is considered improper or offensive, resulting in the narrative structure of the text being fairly weakened. Translations of the 1001 Nights were often the prime victims of boulderization, 
primarily occurring before the Obscene Publication Act of 1857 CE, the result of which can be seen in the large corpus of extant material that, as mentioned before, is found within children's libraries as well as the continual publication of censored translations. One of the prime examples of boulderization occurring within the 1001 Nights is the entirety of Lane's translation. His translation upon publication was proclaimed as removing the grossness of Eastern manners, as described by Jennifer Shacker Mill, which would not offend the British public reading sensibilities. Lane, himself aware of the presence of what he termed as obscene, liberally removed passages from his translation which he found objectionable to spare the British reader from its Arabic cultural time period. However, certain other narratives which he deemed somewhat important to the 1001 Nights were not removed but instead published in a summarized format providing only the barest of details to ensure the reader was well aware of what that narrative contained without referencing to the obscene material. This summarization was an attempt by Lane to ensure that he had retained the text's original overall character. Furthermore, in order to establish the foundation for his translation, he bypasses Scott's original translation, making no mention of it, and directly deriding Galen's translation by proclaiming that it was of poor quality due to the lack of his acquaintance with Arab manners and customs, and that his translation was therefore superior. It should be no surprise that when Richard Burton published his translation in the years 1885 to 1887 CE through a private subscriber base to prevent the Obscene Publication Act of 1857 CE targeting him, that it would raise such a furor. Lane's and Payne's translations were the bedrock of English translations of the 1001 Nights, and that Burton's translation shook this entire foundation by restoring to its somewhat original format, although this had its own issues which will be discussed. Burton's translation was considered to be the garbage of the brothel and an attack on English moral and national character, and drew prominent critics, including John Morley and Stanley Lane Poole, who described the work as unreadable, a varied collection of abominations, and an ocean of filth. While attacks on Burton's translation were of such a nature, others in fact supported his translation as offering the true version of the 1001 Nights and was properly describing Arab culture, which was, in the supporters' eyes, never done before. Manuscripts of the 1001 Nights written in Arabic also seemed to have gone through a process of boulderization, often conducted by the owners of the manuscript themselves. Many of the language and texts seem to have been erased, although they left traces of the existing words in the manuscript. The most prominent example of this was a Syrian manuscript of the 1001 Nights that was stored in the Vatican and had clear signs that there was an attempt by a priest to prevent his fellows from reading the taboo words. This was not restricted solely to the Vatican, but was undertaken by individuals as well. 
One of the most prominent examples of this was a manuscript of a certain English physician, Patrick Russell, who abridged the manuscript to prevent the appearance of taboo words in Arabic. This was a clear effort at destroying the very nature of the 1001 Nights for it to conform to what would have been the value of the Europeans in this period. Obscenity and the 1001 Nights As mentioned above, Richard Burton's translation of 1885-1887 CE had restored the narrative structure of the 1001 Nights by restoring passages that were balderized and, and had either been completely removed or had been summarized as in the case of Lane's translations. The presence of the obscene had a deep-rooted history in Arabic literature and several works both from the pre-Islamic period and the Islamic period, attest to this literary heritage. It should be noted, however, that the censorship of what could be considered obscene has always existed in almost every society. As a result, Arabic literary culture developed, according to Erez Naiman in her article, Eating Figs and Pomegranates, Taboos and Language in the 1001 Nights, in the Journal of Arabic Literature, Volume 44, 2013. Diverse rhetorical tropes which were commonly used when the subject matter required such inclusion. However, the inclusion of the obscene into English translations must be studied in a wholly different manner than in English translations as there must be a cautious approach to studying them. This inclusion might, on the surface, simply be an attempt in the pursuit of a faithful and complete translation. However, current evidence, especially regarding Burton, clearly produces other, far more sinister reasons behind its inclusion. Burton, alongside many other prominent literary personas of this time in Europe, were part of the colonial mechanism of the period. It should therefore be no surprise that they held seemingly racist ideologies. Burton makes this clear enough in his translation when he writes that the reason for his translation and subsequent ethnographic works within their translation is to instruct the English in their colonial pursuits and may be an answer to the Eastern question. The Eastern question was British political concern with the Ottoman Empire and how they would deal with the fallout if the Ottoman Empire disintegrated. This led to the concern of Russian enroachment on the Ottoman Empire. Furthermore, his translation would alleviate the crass ignorance concerning the Oriental people, and that knowledge, in this case seemingly sexual knowledge, would advance the British cause. While these reasons clearly identified the colonialist ambitions that Burton's translations had seemingly appealed to in his other translations, during and after the 1001 Nights bring to light the seemingly darker and more sinister undertones to the creation of this translation. The success at the publication of his translation and the subsequent public furor over it had allowed Burton to venture into other works which were of a wholly more erotic nature and were less publicized. Thus, he turned his attention to the perfumed garden. 
the perfumed garden of sensual delights, al rod al atir, fi nuzhat al hatir, is a 15th century Arabic work written by Muhammad ibn Muhammad al Nezawi, simply known as Nezawi, written for his patron, the Hafsid ruler of Tunis, Abu Faris Abdul al Aziz al Mutawakil. It is a work of erotic literature and presents opinions on what qualities men and women should have to be attractive and gives advice on sexual techniques, warnings about sexual health, and recipes to remedy sexual maladies. It also contains stories which are included to provide moral lessons, context, and amusement. Burton's obsession with the erotic is shown in his translation of the sixth chapter which is 25 pages long and provides descriptions of 39 sexual positions and six type of movements while providing creative names. The actual translation, true to the text itself, is two and a half pages long and lists 12 unnamed positions. Published in 1886 CE and the subsequent retranslation as a scented garden which was in manuscript form in 1860 CE before being destroyed by his wife. The Perfumed Garden was an Arabic sex manual and Burton's interest in it was not only to explore the foreign sexual behaviors of the colonized peoples, but was also an attempt to ride the emerging interest in male sodomy and homosexual identity that was rising during this period. It would therefore not be far-fetched to identify that the inclusion of what could be termed as the obscene within the 1001 Nights was a first foray into tapping this interest by tantalizing the British reader, especially those who were interested in such subjects, into imagining what foreign sexual practices were and how they took place. This can be seen in his ethnographic essay on pederasty, comprising of 50 pages within his translation Although, as Colette Colligan in her article, A Race of Born Pederasts, Sir Richard Burton, Homosexuality and Arabs, in 19th Century Context, Volume 25, Number 21, 2013, has noted that there were only four homosexual narratives within the 1001 Nights. This clearly indicates some of the reasoning behind such a translation in the first place. The inclusion of this essay, when only four narratives were present, furthers his insistence that the Arabs and the Persians are the most inveterate sodomite abominations alongside those in Palestine, Syria, and Egypt, while the Turks are a race of born pederasts. This interest in homosexual practices of the other by Burton, a practice that was the continuation of earlier ethnographic work in the 1001 Nights, might have been an attempt to appropriate Arab texts in order to answer British sexual questions that were being raised during this period. This idea is furthered by Colligan, who argues that the reason for such an interest, not only by Burton, but by other translators and literary personas, were an allusion to the violent sexual subjugation of European men by the other, in this case by Arab men, and that the European male was sexually vulnerable, and to have the disposition of becoming a victim. The inclusion of obscene material, therefore, 
was not meant as an appeal to create a complete or a full translation of the 1001 Nights, but instead was meant to provide a framework to further Burton's appeal to his perverted desires of sexualizing the other. Due to the nature of its publication, both as a privately published and based on a subscriber list, it evaded the Obscene Publications Act of 1857 CE. It was only until after Burton's death that his wife was able to remove much of this ethnographic material and rewriting certain narratives in a similar way as to Lane's translation, which resulted in it still being widely published. It would not be until 2008 that a complete translation undertaken by Malcolm and Ursula Loins with all the seemingly obscene material included, but without the seemingly obvious agenda, would be published. However, the establishment of this trope set out by Burton's translation has seriously marred his literary persona. This translation not only put forward ignorant and crass statements on Arab sexual identities, but also fetishized a colonized people that were continually exploited by the colonizers. The most prominent example of this exploitation is the search for the lost chapter of the perfume garden which detailed homosexuality. This search would lead to the establishment of sex tourism in French Algiers and Tunis where literary personas such as Oscar Wilde and André Guide would search for and employ guides to lead them to Arab boys for sex. Conclusion This preliminary survey of censorship and obscenity within the translations of the 1001 Nights sought to establish the beginning groundwork which thereby other scholars would be able to build on this research to perform further in-depth study of the translations and the translators themselves. As identified, translators became censors often entirely removing tales from the 1001 Nights or in the case of Lane, providing summaries for a complete experience, without the necessary baggage of Arab literary customs. Furthermore, these translations also identified that Heath's depiction of censorship as seemingly liberal prior to the establishment of the Obscenity Publication Act of 1857 CE was in error, as there were multiple and widespread forms of censorship already existing, and that these laws would have applied largely to the literary work that were written and published within the United Kingdom, which excluded translations to some degree. This essay also examined the dark reasons behind the inclusion of obscenity and the role played by Burton's translation, while it did restore to a large extent the original material that had been removed by prior translations. The reason behind his doing so were built on the foundations of colonial exploitation and especially of enforcing an image on the other which would do nothing except to tantalize the European reader and to create an image of a hypersexualized East. This image of a hypersexualized East resulted in Orientalist paintings showcasing supposed versions of harems in the East which were completely based on fantasy. This is continually shown through Burton's essay on pediastry, which had no place in the larger narrative of the 1001 Nights. 
It also shone light into the social events which may have been spurred through the publication of his translation, including the exploration of homosexual themes in the United Kingdom. These two subject areas on the 1001 Nights are only the beginning in describing the role that the English translations played in formulating censorship and obscenity in literature during this period. More fruitful areas of research, such as the censorship and boulderization of the 1001 Nights in children's literature, the role of the 1001 Nights in other languages and time periods, a detailed and extensive analysis on Edward William Lane's translation, the colonial mentality present in the work in relation to his other ethnographic work, and, finally, the reasoning and background of modern-day English translations are available and should be explored. It is hoped that scholars will take up the challenge to ensure that this fruitful field in literary studies continues to grow. In the Great Khan's Tent is now available on coffee. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please click on the link available on our many social media platforms or email us. Why not donate to our coffee to show your appreciation? Every bit helps and we thank you for your continued support. We love that our listeners love listening to us. This episode has been written, edited and produced by Saf Big. Thank you for listening. I hope you have a wonderful day and or night. And may the journeys on which you are set upon be fruitful. Thank you for listening.